If I wanted to every week, the word of the week could be stupid because the layers of stupidity in this country seem to get only deeper. But I won't take the easy way out and name stupid the permanent word of the week. I will challenge myself to come up with creative ways to call folks stupid. So this week, the word of the week is straw man. It's been a couple of days since the FBI announced that a noose found hanging in Bubba Wallace's garage was not a hate crime because per their investigation, that noose had been hanging in the garage since last October. Just so happened that the black guy got the garage with the noose in it. For context, here are the facts that got us to the point of an FBI investigation. Bubba Wallace is the only black driver on NASCAR's top racing series. He painted his car to say Black Lives Matter. He wore a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on the track. He also urged NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag, which they did earlier this month. Now, Bubba Wallace obviously has been right in the thick of some intense dialogue about race and received a lot of hate for it from NASCAR fans and even from other drivers. So of course it made complete sense that when a NASCAR official saw a noose hanging in Wallace's garage at Talladega, this person immediately alerted other NASCAR officials about the discovery and they called the FBI. NASCAR told Bubba Wallace about the noose. They released a statement to the public about said noose and they informed people then that they were reaching out to the feds. That was the correct course of action. But after the FBI's findings, a swell of Bubba Wallace truthers have now emerged. Some have called him Bubba Smollett. Obviously, shout out to Jesse, even though, again, he wasn't the one who reported the noose to NASCAR. These same simple minded truthers are also coming after those of us in the media who had the audacity to not only be appalled by the discovery of the noose, but link this to the larger issue of NASCAR being a sport that is strongly, strongly linked to racism because of the sport's own history and its racist fans, as in its many racist fans. I'm media, by the way. And the person who came after me was renowned blackface expert, staunch white Jesus and white Santa Claus supporter, Megan Kelly, who tweeted that I needed to apologize for being wrong about the noose incident and calling NASCAR fans racist. And besides Megan Kelly, there was a wave of people who said we all overreacted and that it wasn't a noose, but a garage door pulley, the kind of pulley that would be found, according to them, in any garage. As I just so eloquently laid out to you, I, nor anyone else in the media, uncovered the noose in Bubba Wallace's garage. NASCAR did. They called it a noose. The media only reported the information that was considered to be the official record. I know it's crazy, but I'd also like to think someone who works for NASCAR knows the difference between a garage door pulley and a noose. Secondly, NASCAR has since released a photo of the noose hanging in Bubba Wallace's garage. It's the noosiest of nooses. This is the gold standard of nooses. It is unequivocally a fucking noose. These truthers are responding to this incident in a way that is frighteningly similar to how those people who just live to discredit women about being violated when a false accusation of sexual assault is made. They are far more outraged about the rare occurrence of a false accusation than they are about actual sexual assault, which happens, by the way, to one in five women. They often use these sporadic incidences of false accusations as damning evidence for why women shouldn't be believed. 
Likewise, the Megyn Kellys of the world didn't have shit to say when NASCAR driver Kyle Larson used the N-word during a virtual race a couple months ago. They didn't have shit to say when Dustin Skinner, the son of NASCAR driver Mike Skinner, posted on Facebook. Frankly, I wish they would have tied the noose to Wallace and drug him around the pits because he has single-handedly destroyed what I grew up watching and cared about for 30 years now. These bad faith actors also didn't have shit to say about the constant presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR races. Actually, let me correct myself. Megan White Jesus Kelly did have a lot to say about the Confederate flag because she wrote a column calling the suppression of the Confederate flag, quote unquote, tyranny. I do not understand why people are so outraged that NASCAR and folks like me took the appearance of a noose seriously. Actually, let me walk that back too. I do know why they're upset. They're upset because they're not invested in actually standing against racism. They like inequality because it benefits them. They like their white privilege just the way it is. And they're upset because their privilege, their affinity for racism or inaction in the presence of racism is being called out. They want to play semantics. They want to use this incident as an example of why racism in this country isn't really that bad. They need a straw man. So that is why it is the word of the week. Deep Negro spiritual sigh. All right, now let's get to today's guest. He is a phenomenal lyricist, a truth teller, a critical thinker, and also a native Detroiter who has been helping hold down our rap scene in the D for years. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the incredible Royce the Five Nine. You know, Royce, I have a few times in my life been asked, like, what's the best rap lyric of all time? Like, what's the who had, you know, the best lyric you ever heard? And before I used to go back and forth between something I said, Biggie, a whole bunch of people. But you, you had the best. It wasn't necessarily a lyric, but you had the best rap reference of all time. Do you know what that reference is? It comes from your latest album, Allegory, song called My People Free. And you dropped the best reference ever. I'll play that reference for you. My appreciation goes out to Reason Islam, David Banner, Derek Grace, Mike Eric Dyson, D.L. Hughley, T.I.P., Clarence Avon, Steve Carlos, Pharrell, Killer Mike, Jay-Z, Dave Chappelle, Jamel Hill. And a special shout out and thank you to Ice-T and Ice Cube for putting your platform on the line so we can say whatever we want on our platform. You are appreciated. That's the best rap reference ever. You actually shouted me out in one of your songs. And let me tell you, that was a major I made it moment. I was like, holy shit. Royce Nine dropped me in a, in a lyric. You're the queen of all queens. Oh. Of all queens. Uh, well, and you mentioned me along some people. Frankly, I was like, I, I don't know if I deserve my name to be said next to these people. But <laughs> I, I thank you that you see me. Uh, in that you same just mentioned mind. mine with Nas, so you you return the favor. Uh, well, look, you look at a lot of lists um, it, because, especially for hip hop purists, in a lot of top MCs of all time lists, a lot of top I forget which one that I I read in preparing for this interview um, had you in the top fifty ever. I mean, you you are in, in 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 many circles regarded in that way. I mean, is that 
how you see yourself. Mm, I don't think we should do. We should put ourselves in there, but it's 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 layered when you like an artist like you when you get in front of the mic you got all the confidence in the world you can move a mountain but then like when the mic goes off there's a different layer to your personality you know what i mean like i don't think this like you work hard so you don't have to like self-proclaim things you know what i mean like it's not it don't feel as good when you gotta like you know how america is like you know the self-proclaimed greatest country in the world yeah it's it's like one it of those us, it makes america <laughs> look even worse because it's like literally no one's ever called you that no one no one <laughs> maybe they were like if you if you claim it name it and claim it like <laughs> well sometimes you know like you try to speak it into existence you know but i just i i haven't had any any luck with that that way of like doing things like when i got my first deal um i was young and i was like really stupid so like i I got the deal. Then I did an interview talking about how much I got in the deal. And then I called myself the king of Detroit. Wow. Did you hear any pushback from anybody when you said that? Yeah, it took me about 15 years to kind of like get out of that hole I dug. It's bad. It was like a snowball effect. Uh, let's talk about allegory, though, because it feels I don't know if you have this feeling now because of everything that's happening in the country as we're taping this podcast, living, trying to coexist with a pandemic allegory it almost feels like it was in you know many ways it was a lot of foreshadowing in that um when you think about your album even though it was released what the earlier part of this year correct yeah, yeah it was released at the early part of this year um when you think about your album the substance of it and then compare that to how we're living now um does it make that album you know, kind of hit you in a different way because of, of how we're living in this moment and because of some of the things you talked about on Allegory. It hits other people in a different way now. And um, I think that's kind of like what music is supposed to do. It doesn't hit me in a different way because um, it's actually telling that it applies to what's going on now because things that went on before and things that have been going on and things that continue to just repeat is what inspired, you know, the content. If you look at Ice-T cop killer, you know what I mean? If you just look at some of the things NWA spoke about, if you look at like some of the fights publicly that Uncle Luke had, like you're talking about these guys went on like Donahue, Oprah and defended us. Like they've defended our right to be able to, to express ourselves without being censored. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like when you see stuff like that and then you fast forward all of these years and it's the exact same problem. It's the exact same problem. It's, it's telling. So some of my young homies, a couple of them came to the studio like when I first finished it and I played it for them. And one of, one of their reaction was real interesting to me because he was just like real quiet after the last song went off. And then he was like, you doing that? Damn. This what you about to do? I was like, so what are you feeling? Like, tell me, what are you feeling right now? He, I was like, is it like fear? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what, what, you, what are you afraid of? He was just like, I don't know. And I was like, wow. So you're afraid. You don't know what you're afraid of. You know what I'm saying? So it was just like, he was like, well, how do you feel like your white fans are going to feel about this? And I'm like, oh, man, like, I don't. I'm not thinking about my white fans with this album, just like I didn't think about my white fans with any other album. Why would I like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't really care what anybody thinks. Like, that's not what artistic expression is about. 
But what's more important to me is I'm trying to figure out where this fear is coming from. And we need to look at that. Like, that's a problem. You know what I mean? So, um, and then I had another guy just kind of like challenge me. You know, coming off a book of Ryan, man, it's just not a good move, man. Like you had the Eminem record, you had the Cole record. You know, certain people don't like people talking certain ways. And it's just like, and you know, you're talking separatism. That was the word he was using. Separatism. You're talking separatism. Like, you know, like I guess he was accusing me of being divisive. And um, I think what, what, what this situation is showing us is that we've always been outside of this paradigm that they're talking about. Like, we, I didn't put us outside of it. We, we're there already. All I'm doing is letting you know that we're there. You know what I mean? Like, of course, people are going to pretend like that we're all harmonious. But come on, man. Like, that's all I'm doing. For, for it to be so relative to everything that's going on now, it's just, it's just kind of proves the point I was trying to make. Well, especially when you think about a track like Black Savage. I mean, you could have dropped that yesterday it would apply you could have dropped it five years ago it would apply mm-hmm. 10 15 um but overall though this was an interesting direction to take you you mentioned that your last project book of ryan which was very personal right and so then you go from that to allegory uh what's responsible for you taking your uh fans from someplace that was really personal into this other realm of consciousness that you have well i feel like Every artist should have one self-defining album, like preferably first, if you're like in tune with yourself enough to be able to do that, your first album. Me, I was not. So I had to actually like learn myself through the process of the art. Like when I came into the business, I got signed really, really young. Marshall just kind of like, yo, you're ready. Let's go. You know what I mean? Like, go get a record deal. Like, and it was just like, I was fresh out the open mic. I fell in love with the words. I was drawn to the words and the different ways that you can connect the syllables. I like a a, more of like a literary guy. You know what I mean? Um, I never, I never got inspired off of personal experiences to speak about them. So what would happen was me not knowing what I, what I was creatively turned into me feeling like, Everything that is me that I, which I identified with back then, I thought wouldn't be interesting to people. So I just rapped about being able to rap good. You know what I mean? So it was like, and then like when I started drinking real heavy, I started drinking, rapping about drinking real heavy. And it was just like, everything was just kind of a reflection of where I was at the time. And then when I stopped drinking, it's like, the most important worst year, year of my life, like that first year, like adjusting to dealing with things in real time and like getting used to my brain clicking on all cylinders. It was really, really tough. I was overanalyzing everything. I was like telling myself what people are thinking, you know what I mean? Like just like dealing with making that transition from like having to cut people out of my actually I didn't have to cut anybody out of my life but they just kind of fall off you know it's cancer it just falls off they just get rid of themselves you know what I mean so it was like um it was real tough for me to come up write stuff come up with stuff material my rhythm was a little bit off I thought it was over I thought it was I thought I was done (laughs) you know what I'm saying like I was like this this, I don't got it no more you know what I mean like I I convinced myself of a lot of things, you know what I mean? So like through that process, a lot of old memories that I probably thought that I wouldn't, I never would get again. I start 
they just start hitting me. I just start like thinking of things. And then I was going to therapy and like, I started realizing like some of the traumatic things that, that I experienced as a youngin were, were affecting me a little bit more than I thought because I just got so used to suppressing feelings. That's kind of like how I dealt with every emotion, you know, just take it and put it somewhere, pretending like it never happened. And I just feel better about it. No problem. Go to a funeral. No problem. Right after the funeral, I'm laughing with my cousins. No problem. It's just a funeral. You know what I mean? And it, I began to normalize traumatic shit. You know what I'm saying? So um, once I start talking about all of these things in therapy, like one of my first sessions, I, once I start going into like my childhood, I, I, one thing led to another and I was in tears. You know what I mean? So it was like, that was the first time emotion came out of me, like on its own. Like you're not stopping me from coming out. You know what I mean? So it's like, that let me know that like some of these things were affecting me a little bit more than I thought. So, you know, being able to identify with those things, I was able to be, you know, okay. I was able to get to a better place about certain things and, and like starting to learn yourself like that. It starts to come out in the art. So now I'm going to the studio and I'm expressing things in a way that's giving me the same fulfillment that therapy did. And then once I started releasing music and then feeling the way that it, it was connecting with people and helping people, it was the first time in my life that I felt like I was doing good. You know what I'm saying? Because there were times where I felt successful, but I didn't necessarily feel like I was doing good. I just felt like I was successful, but I didn't feel like I was doing a good thing because nothing about what I did like targeted good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, all my raps, they weren't like negative or nothing like that, but you're not going to invite me to like rap on Ellen or nothing. You know what I'm saying? It was the first time I felt like my gift could be used for good. Would it be fair to say, based off what you just described, that although you have found your calling and that you you obviously loved rap and love making art and love making music, you hadn't found your purpose? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I hadn't found anything, you know, e everything was like, everything was a journey. Everything was a search. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, I don't know, man. Like I, I, I kind of feel like I was just talking about this with the homies. I kind of feel like us as black men, we kind of like, it's hard for us to identify with things. Like we, our idea of like happiness and success, like, I talking to somebody, I can't, I don't even want to tell you who I was talking to, but somebody who I know that's famous, who's very successful, who's black. I was on the phone with him and the nigga sound exactly like a white person. Me from the element, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, so I'm talking to my manager and I'm like talking shit behind him, behind his back about him in a harmless way. But I'm like, yo, I'm on the phone with this man. This man sounds exactly like a white dude. He's, I thought I was on the phone with a white man. I almost didn't recognize it. It's talking white. So my manager says, that nigga ain't talking white. That nigga talking rich. <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, bro, no, he's talking white. He's talking white. He's not using proper. It's one thing to speak using proper English to articulate. And then there's another thing to just, you know, like 
well, yeah. So, yeah, we were on the phone. So what I was thinking is, who are you? What are you talking about? That's like, it's funny, but that's problematic. That's problematic, especially like the things that we deem is successful, the things that we chase. It's kind of like we're saying, damn, if we can just live like the white people, live our lives exactly like them, if we can get to exactly doing exactly what they do, how they do it. Like when I hear about black people, blackballing black people, that that's a pet peeve of mine because we didn't we didn't create that. I didn't, we didn't learn, we did, that's not our thing. We didn't learn, we didn't, uh uh-uh, nah. That's us partaking in other people's ways of dealing with things. So like, I don't like some of the things that we pick up. It's like, we're too talented to to integrate into something and not find our own identity within that. Like, that's that's like a problem for me. So, but um, to, I I guess to, to, Take that a little further, though. Now, are you talking about people that maybe, I guess to use the popular term, cancel, right? People that are canceled, you feel like frivolously or because we're trying to adopt the mainstream culture and doing these things. Um, Because do you feel like there are some people that need to be canceled? You know, like I'll take a, a, a good one that has a lot of people on the fence. Kanye. Kanye has a lot of people on the fence right now, right? A lot of us. Not going to lie, myself included, I have canceled Kanye, all right? Great musician. If you still listen to him, do do you. I, I'm all right. But he feels like an operative to me. And I, I just can't get down with the operative Kanye, right? Now, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe, as you said, I'm adopting something that we didn't necessarily create. Because it is very true that Black people have loved one another. I mean, we may bicker, we fight, we have our infighting. That, that definitely happens. But we have Black protectionism down. Like we, we ride for our folk to the point of exhaustion, to the point of our own detriment. But it's some people that I'm just like, we just got to leave them behind. And if they get back, great, but they may never come back and I'm good with it. So what do we do with the problematic ones is what I'm wondering. That's a layered one. <laughs> there are some that can't be saved. Like R. Kelly can't be saved. Nor should we try. We just got to let that one go. <laughs> but I'm not justifying anything. Let's, let me preface this. If we had our own ecosystem, like if there was a way that we could have confronted him earlier and gave him an intervention and gave him help, you take this help or we're canceling you or we're feeding you to the wolves. At least we could have said we could have tried to save him. Now I feel like um, he's a victim of circumstance from things that happened to him as a child, but then he he got in, into a profession that gave him a platform that fueled everything that's bad about him. And he uh, he abused his him being abused. He abused that, and then he took it too far. So now he can't be saved, but I just feel like if we didn't care about him, you know they're not going to care about him. You know what I mean? So it's like... He left us, we, he left it to where we can't sympathize, but you can, you can empathize, but then I understand if you don't empathize at all. But I'm also like, my wife, like when I first went around her family, like there was a, there was an uncle that she had, that was like, he had done things to some of the younger girls in the family, a couple of them. And every time I go to a family event, he's there always. 
none of the adults are saying anything to him. Nobody is addressing this. Like one time, one of the young girls confronted him real loud. And she was like saying everything that he did. And then and the adults were just acting like they didn't, they didn't hear nothing. You know, and it's like, I'd never heard of a situation in our community where we ever went to the origin of the problem. Like nobody ever goes to that guy. It's always about the girl or whatever moving forward. So it's like, if we did, if we didn't take steps to help our Kelly, we can't possibly think that somebody else is not going to come right behind him and do the same thing. Probably be just as talented, probably be similar situations. And we can't sit around and be like, yo, why does this cycle keep repeating itself? It's a cycle that we see. We just not like addressing it in a way that's, getting to a place like getting to a solution if we're looking for a solution we got so many problems it's like what do you focus on i feel like i can have this conversation with you because it i think the toughest part in that um and even the dynamic you pointed out in your wife's family because that has also happened in in my family there was an uncle who um sexually abused you know um women in 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 my family um and that person was never dealt with um so the other side and what makes it much more complicated in our community is that the support for, let's just take R. Kelly since we were talking about him, whatever supportive measures they may have been for him is coming at the expense of black women. So it's sort of like the conversation in our community that's very difficult to have is that one is not just about sexual abuse, but if we have among us, you know, people who are abusing people within our community, like what is, I'm, and I'm certainly not asking you to figure out all these, these very big problems. What, what is our game plan for that? Because for so long for us, it's been about racism and nothing else. And these gender dynamics that we have in our community have been really ignored for a long time. And because of that, it has allowed, I think a lot of people to receive a layer of protectionism and our support that they frankly don't deserve because it's going to come at the expense of somebody else. So that is to me the toughest conversation to have in, in our community because I feel like, and I'm sure you've heard this from black women before and just watching the R. Kelly thing play out and just, you know, just probably even talking to people in your circle is that's why you often hear black women say we're invisible. That's exactly why, because we know that once um, there's an there's an issue revolving around a, a black man where we have been the victim. That's where it's going to stay. And we're not, you know, I, look, I mean, fuck R. Kelly. As far as I'm concerned, I'm worried about the girls that he victimized. You know what I'm saying? And like what what support can we give them being that, you know, he was able to do a lot of this in very plain view. You know, very open sight. And we just were like, all right, well, I married her to live at 14. All right. It's like, what? <laughs> you know? And unfortunately, it's because we've seen that happen so much in our own families. And maybe not marriage, but like people being shielded despite being abusive. So it's tough. Yeah. I was I was thinking um back around that time, like Aaliyah. Like that's when it was like, it was in your face. It was in your face, but it wasn't um, urinating on a girl on camera. Right. But it was it was it was in your face and it was not it, it, healthy. You know, I didn't notice it because I was so young. But like, I think as our community, we should have noticed it. Our community should have noticed it. Somebody should have sprung into action then. And I just think it's a, a preventative measure 
if that's in place, then that's like that prevents a whole bunch of fucked up stuff. You know what I mean? Like if I had never drank, if I never became a drunk, I could have like diffused and avoided and deflected so much up shit. Yeah. I think the reason why I try to find the silver lining in some of these situations is because uh, still to this day, depending on who I'm talking to, like they still haven't given me my license. I still get treated like an alcoholic. You know what I mean? So like I know how it feels to have a problem, to have a problem that 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 um triggers you to make decisions that are a reflection of of a piece of who you are. But like these things can be improved upon if you're willing to make those improvements. Like I said, everybody can't be saved, but just like problematic shit that we see in our community, we know the warning signs and that that's, that's when we need to spring into action. So like R Kelly is a little more sensitive. Kanye boy, Kanye. (laughs) Right. I kind of understand some of Kanye. I don't like, political Kanye because I just feel like political Kanye has no idea what's going on. And um, I'm used to him being a little bit more enlightened or at least having enough respect for the people who listen to him to go research before you just say things. So sure. Like he's really good. at sounding like he knows what he's talking about. And if you're listening to him, you're like, okay, yeah. So it's in the studio. That's where the magic is. You know, it's not just everywhere. You know what I mean? Okay. But that makes me feel a little better about myself. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like there was a moment where like his confidence was through the roof. And to me, that's the magic that is Kanye. As soon as he started questioning that, everything changed. As bad as, you know, Taylor Swift may have been made to feel. And like, I've, I'm sorry that she was made to feel that way. But I think that was like a moment in, um, in our culture that's like should have been celebrated. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. I'm saying it's like it's like a moment where... Um, there's a few ways to look at it. It's all perspective. Like, if you want to look at it like this guy's just drunk, you know, bullying, okay, cool. But not really, because, like, he, he, there was, like, a quick moment where he made America really live in the truth. You know what I mean? Like, we run this. You know what I mean? Like, we run this, man. Like, he's talking about Beyonce. He's telling the truth. You know what I mean? Like, you can spend a lot of money and, and, like, make Taylor Swift appear to be larger than life. And she is a good artist. She's talented. She's a nice looking girl. She's, she makes good music, but bro, she's not Beyonce. Don't you dare try to like, no, come on, man. Like, no, half both of them go to the mall. See how that works out for you. I don't care any mall. You're right. It any ain't even got to be a mall in certain neighborhoods. Yeah. Like, there is no mall where there's a person in that mall who's not going to know who Beyonce is. There is people in malls everywhere who will have no idea who Taylor Swift is. So we're not talking about something that's even comparable. You know what I mean? And it's no disrespect to Taylor Swift. It's my outlook on pop music in general. It's just not something that's like, it's not legacy. You know what I'm saying? So it shouldn't be compared to us. We make classic music. Pop music is not created to resonate that way. It's, it's, nothing's being built on iHeart Media stage. That's like a platform where you just go and you talk to nobody. It's like really no crowd there. It's like you're not talking to anybody. It's just you're letting people see that you're successful. 
but you're not speaking to anybody in particular. <laughs> um, you I tell you what, Royce, you got takes. <laughs> I love it. You got takes. Um, and uh, I want to get some more of those. And I also want to go a little uh, deeper in the allegory. And I have some fun questions, some fun Detroit related questions. So I got to see how how deep Detroit are you? Are you like schoolcraft, Finkel, Detroit? or where, where I'm from? <laughs> no, I know you're not from, okay. from that particular okay. part. But like, <laughs> you know, I, as I, 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 I often, I joke with people who are from the east side of Detroit that they say, I'm from the west side. So I always mess with them and say they side was worse. You know, like, y'all way more hood. We a little more refined on the west side. And they'll be like, but schoolcraft. I'm like, see, we ain't talking about schoolcraft. <laughs> <laughs> but, I always got jokes for my east side. I got oh, east side. Huh? I mean, I, it's always east side. It's jokes. always like always got jokes for the east side. So sorry, east side Detroiters, if you're listening. But uh, more that I want to get to with you, Royce. We're gonna take a quick break and be right back with Royce to find out. I want to go back to something that you said um, a few minutes ago when you were talking about uh, your sobriety. So you've been sober now eight years. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned how that first year was kind of, you, you know, it was a transitional year, the first year of it and figuring out what your life like looked like as a, a sober person. What was it that really helped you? I know it wasn't just one thing, but what was it that kind of helped you figure out what that was? It sounds like therapy was one component of that, but like what else was helping you figure out what your new life was going to look like. I think we're just naturally we're just adjusters. I think that we are, we're always figuring things out on the fly. You know, nothing was ever given to us, especially me. You know, so like I just I learned patience. I was forced to learn patience. Like when I went to jail, I was forced to just relax, reflect sit still for a second, you know, like things were moving too fast. I was about to kill myself. You know what I mean? So, um, that time when I went to jail, it was like, I got some of the best sleep I ever had. I got, you know, just did some of the best thinking. And then the time when I got sober that first year and I had nobody calling my phone and, um, I got to deal with my wife in real time. You know, it's like, she caught me cheating a bunch of times, you know, like um, I used to just want, I used to be like, I could just drink and then like, I can just get mad at her for getting mad at me. That was like, that was like my thing. That's easy. You know what I'm saying? And then like, when you're not drinking, you can't do that. You know what I mean? So it's like, you got to find a way to kind of like get to a place where you can like, you know, exist, coexist with each other and heal with each other. So it was something about her looking to me to like build her back up even though i'm carrying baggage you know what i'm saying like it was something about that that was like that was kind of like healing in a way you know it was like us we because we've been together since we were babies like teenagers you know what i mean so it's like it takes you back there you know what i mean and that that helped me deal within the house and then um going to the studio, leaving frustrated, and then kind of like just being so frustrated that I stopped getting frustrated and I stopped even caring about getting anything done in the studio and just start going just to be in the element. And I, it taught me that I just, you know, it taught me patience, you know, and I 
once I start feeling a little better about waiting on it as opposed to going to find it, I start catching it. You know what I mean? So like I, I was able to connect to the to the uh the creative side in a more spiritual sort of way. You know what I mean? Like everything that I've ever tried to like force in my life, relationships, trying to do something that's outside of my character, allowing somebody to control the way that I react to something or the way that I, or allowing somebody to influence me to do something that I have a feeling about or ignoring some sort of instinct. Anytime anything like that has ever happened to me, it worked out bad. Anything, artistic intent, anytime that I've ever went in the studio and said, I'm making this record with the intention to do this, boom, never works, never works for me. Only the times where I went to the studio and I wasn't thinking about shit like that, where something just happened as opposed to me going, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I'm going to do this this way. And it just happened. That always works for me. It works for me in every way. You know what I mean? And everything just becomes easy. You know, so it's like I just got to a point where I just stopped fighting things. I just stopped going against the grain of things. I, I came to a place where I realized my karma is instant. It's not meant for me to do bad things. You know what I mean? I got to like do right by people. I got to like make sure, you know what I mean? Like that I understand that whatever level of success is not free. You have to take it and then you have to pay it forward in some sort of way. And that's the mission, not to get rich or famous. It's to express and pay it forward. You know what I mean? Like it's bigger than me. You know what I mean? Once I got to that place, Everything is easy. So what was it that convinced you that you needed to go to therapy? I mean, we're having this open conversation in the in the black community about mental health. So what was it that finally got you in the place where you felt like I need to do this? Sobriety. It was just alcohol addiction was the caveat when I went to therapy. That was like I went there only to talk about that. And it was like, we were talking about that. And one thing led to another. And it was like, next thing you know, I was all in with everything. And my therapist is not even, um, he's not even a psychologist. He's a, he's an addict. He's like certified in some things, but he's really, and he's not black. He's not black. So I'm like, I'm actually, I did a, um, I did a Zoom call with a, with a, with a therapist, a black lady, um, and I loved her so much that I asked Teresa if she can like contact her and ask her if she can be my other therapist. So you I need more talk than one. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to her too because it's like she just was inspiring because it was like she just it was like she knew everything about me and she wasn't even like she wasn't even referring to me. She was addressing things, issues in our community, and she was addressing things and she was like um, connecting it to connecting certain things that plague us to certain things that plagued us in the past and how you know everything connects and like you know when this evolves from that I love that kind of talk because it just it makes me able to be okay with some with certain things if I can just understand it you know what I'm saying did you and your wife ever go together or you just did this individually um we never went together we were supposed to she went to a completely she went to a marriage counselor she went to a marriage counselor. So she was seeing a marriage counselor while I was still drinking. You know what I mean? So um, I actually never met that lady. I never met her. She got her to a place where she at least could make a decision 
uh, rather, okay, do you want your husband? Do you want him? Are you, do you want those women to have him or do you want him? He was like, no, I don't want them to have him. I want him. She was like, okay, so go get your husband. Okay. And I think, I think that's progressive because like, I feel like we fixate on, on things that we think are big in the scheme of like a marriage and like cheating. You know, like I know women and men view it differently, you know what I mean? But like, it's not as big of a deal as I thought. This I got to, I would love for you to elaborate on as somebody who's now been married seven months. <laughs> Please elaborate on this, Royce. Well, I mean, I'm just speaking from my experience. And like, and, and when I talk to other people that are that are married and that have went through problems, and then like, um, I used to think, I guess because of the way it was framed to me as growing up, I always thought that if you cheat and you get caught cheating, that's like the end of whatever. That's the end. And then you know, like, you look at TV and be like, Halle Berry divorces her husband because he went on a date. Now she's married to a different person, and just like people go on from person to person, and it's just like. Initially, I was like, these niggas are stupid. They cheating on Halle Berry? And then as I got a little older, I'm like, Halle Berry need to be a little bit more understanding if Halle Berry want to be happy. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, at some point, like, you got to realize that those couples, the old couples sitting in the wicker chairs on the porch, they've been through it all. It's how they bounce back from things. It's like, not to justify cheating because I feel horrible about that because I feel like, I feel like um, us as men, like I know me for sure. When I got into the game, I did things just to, to fit in. You know, like I took my first drink with Dr. Dre, not because I wanted to drink, but just because I didn't want to say no, because it was Dr. Dre, which I'm sure would be understandable to people. But the problem with that way of thinking is that like, if it's not Dr. Dre and if it's somebody who doesn't have your best interest at hand or at heart, what they'll do is they'll keep putting you in positions to drink and they'll do that to get things from you. Like you go to like six of these meetings and now you have no publishing left. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not a good way to think, you know, like it's, it's, I didn't understand the importance of drawing lines in the sand and creating boundaries for myself and um, the importance of having things to stand on. You know what I mean? Like I've always like, I've never in life, there's never been a time in my life drinking or no drinking that I ever would have considered having sex with like one of my, one of my homies girls or, or nothing like that. Like I would, I wouldn't have did heroin and did that. So if I can take that stance in that sense, then how is that any different from anything that I can do behind my wife's back, who I'm closer to than any man that I've ever had a relationship with outside of the the men that I grew up with? And it's just like, it's a taught kind of like way of looking at things. You know what I mean? So like, I feel bad in that sense. And I also feel bad that she was made to feel like that publicly. And I feel bad, you know, like being the cause of so much pain you know what i mean and i feel bad for the embarrassment and i feel bad just her having to bear the brunt of a lot of my development you know what i mean and and all the different ways that i change from when we were kids so like i i feel bad about that but if she had a left just because of cheating with all of the other things that are in play with this kind of relationship 
that would have been pretty fucked up. <laughs> well, I, I was I was goading you a little bit. I I know what you mean. And one of the d- early discussions that me and my husband had uh, before we actually got married was you kind of got to know up front, like what your deal breaker is. Like, what is it? You know, because this what can be scary, I think, when you get married, depending on, you know, everybody has a different sensibility is once I knew I mean, one of the many reasons I knew I was going to marry him is like, I knew I wasn't going to leave him if he cheated on me. Mm. Right. Like, I was like, I'm not going to leave you for that. Now, if you tell me you don't love me anymore, if you tell me you don't want to be with me, that's a different conversation. That's not the same conversation as cheating. And that can be really vulnerable to admit to somebody because you feel like, like, damn, am I just telling this motherfucker to cheat on me? <laughs> like, yeah. But what I am saying is like, yes, there is a lot of truth to what you say in the sense that like that in, in itself is once you get into a marriage and I'm, I'm sure there are some women right now listening like, are you fucking kidding me? I wouldn't have said this for somebody I didn't feel that way about. Yeah. But that's the way I look at it. Now, conversely, I'll ask you as a, as, you know, obviously as a man, but you were doing your thing. If you had like men, to, men do take cheating differently. You apply one standard when you do it and another standard if we do it. So is do you fall into that line that for a lot of guys, when we cheat, that means something so much different that mm-hmm. it's hard for it's hard for a lot of men. I know to forgive women for cheating very hard. They don't look at it the same way. I don't think we look at everybody and hold everybody to the same standards the same way. I think that's a human thing. If like Michael Rappaport, a tape comes out where he's on the video and he's using the N-word and he's being like disrespectful to us. I would have, I would feel a way about that. But like, if like Fallon got caught doing the same thing, I would feel a little bit different. Now, if Jim Carrey got caught doing it, I'd be hurt. If Will Ferrell got caught doing it, oh man, he's fucking up my faith in humanity. It's not that one is worse than the other. It's the way I perceive these people. So like, um, my wife, when she caught me, uh, I thought she was going to be hurt at just the fact that I was cheating. She taught me something. She wasn't tripping about that. Not that she was okay with it. What she had the problem with and what she couldn't let go was the shit that she was reading where it seemed like I was letting certain girls into my world in the way I was treating them. You gave them that. That was the problem. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, I never knew it was even layers to it like that. You know what I'm saying? So, so like, if it's layers to that, quite naturally, my, my mind is telling me if my wife cheated, you're out of your mind. This shit is over with. That's how I think I feel. But, like, I also thought, like, success meant to get rich. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're you're preparing yourself for something that you have no way of being prepared for. You just have to go through it and then see how you react to something because you, if you can't leave somebody, you can't leave somebody. It doesn't matter what they do. You know what I mean? You can say, Oh man, somebody do this. Somebody do this to my girl. I'm gonna kill him. You know what I mean? Like you would think some shit, but don't mean you're going to do it. 
You know what I mean? So like, it's just, it's just to me, I always tell her like, I, if you cheat, if you cheat, I like, I talk like this cause I'm just, I'm, I'm kidding. When I talk like this, I'm speaking like in the figurative sense, but it's like, if you cheat on me, I'm killing everybody. I'm killing you. I'm killing him. It's a joke, but it's really to say, I'll go crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll go overboard with that, but really I don't know how I will react to that. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, um, that's a lot of self-awareness on your part. It, it may mean something differently. Cause like you said, in giving your example is based off how you perceive the person that's actually doing it, you know, and that allows for you either to be much more ju- judgmental or maybe much more uh, empathetic. Now, um, as somebody, I mean, you've seen this, this, this hip hop evolve in so many different ways. And of course it's hard not to notice that uh, as of late, um, we've seen a lot of younger artists who have unfortunately passed because of overdoses. Um, and that seems, you know, I don't want to inflate the problem, but it's hard not to notice at least that there's some kind of trend uh, as somebody who, you know, got money early, got kind of caught up in the industry early. Is this just something that's just a part of, of what happens in music or should people be alarmed when you see, you know, a Mac Miller and some of the other deaths that we, that we've seen in the business? We should be alarmed. I mean, um, all of them are disturbing. The Mac Miller one is, 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 is particularly disturbing because he got sold some shit with like fentanyl in it, right? Correct. Technically he was, he was killed. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be addiction in music. Um, that is to me is just connected to creativity in some strange way. It, there's always, it seems like everybody feels like they have to have some sort of vice. Like I get asked that question all the time. Like, it's like, you don't drink. So you just smoke. I'm like, no, that's not like, you got to do something. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, so they'd be like, um, so, I mean, you don't drink or smoke. So how you like, what, what's your thing? Like, what, what do you do? Like to get, you know, uh, I pull out my phone and start typing things. Like, that's it. You know what I mean? So it's like, everybody feels like they need something, you know what I mean? So, um, I just think now all of the drugs, which there's always been drugs. I have had long conversations with DJ Premier who has the greatest stories, by the way. And um, that generation, rappers back then, yo, they were doing like crack. Did you know that? I did not because uh, I had a conversation with both uh, Uncle Luke and Talib Kweli because the one thing this is just as a fan with no insight into what the inner workings of the industry. It seemed like uh, the old most deaf lyric um, hip hop went from selling crack to smoking it. Right. That's the, the, the difference is like you have artists these days just rapping about being straight up addicts. Mm-hmm. I don't recall that being the case on the hip hop I grew up with. You, everybody rapped about slanging. I mean, that was a given. Right. But you ain't yeah. hear them being like, and hey, yo, I smoke this crack. You'd be like, wait, what? Like, relax. But you're telling me that that was going on behind the scenes and we just didn't yeah. know it. Heavy, dr- heavy drug use. They were like they were like rock stars. They just was on some hip hop shit. That was the that was the thing back then. Just be on some hip hop shit. But um, I think now that we have a lot more suburban rappers, for some reason, we got like a lot more like guys like Wayne. Yay. Uh, they op- they opened Pharrell like they opened up doors for like M- Marshall they opened up doors for people that we've never seen before. And it's like, I just think they're speaking from a perspective um, that that's always been that in that element, you know, um, the, the macho, like hardcore, 
I'll beat your ass, Timberland wearing macho uh, like rap guy. Like that's no longer the uh, the standard aesthetic for a rapper now. Like now the thing is just okay. It's okay to be yourself. Whatever you are, we're interested. We want to hear different people's stories. And I think once you start throwing the suburbs in the mix, and black kids that grew up in the suburbs whose parents probably were rappers or singers or entertainers or drug dealers or whatever. And they grew up not with the same struggles and they just were exposed to different things, you know, like all of these pills that we never heard of and all of this shit. They're just projecting that they're like expressing that, you know? Um, and some of those waves just kind of like caught on, you know what I mean? Like, the fact that it's so unexplainable is, is I think what makes it kind of like a moment. My only thing is I don't know how sustainable some of these moments are. Like I often worry like the last maybe 10 years, like Kendrick Cole, Drake. And then you go 20 more years later. Like what are, what are you, what are you going to have that's going to speak for you? you like, you, you're literally going to be forgotten. There's going to be like years and years worth of music that was released that nobody cares about. Nobody talks about it. You remember in music when everybody started dressing really funny and people started using synthesizers? Yeah. Miami Vice, every, the way everybody was dressed. And like you look at movies like Weird Science and everything just look like it looks like the world was just in a really weird place. You know what I'm saying? And it was like, damn, what were they going through? Like they had sweaters on with the sleeves pulled up, members only jackets. And, you know what I mean? Everybody was really just weird. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it was like guys like Rick James, would, they were like the geniuses, you know, like, and then after that ushered in Michael, Michael Jackson, who was just like some shit we've never seen before or heard before. And then Prince with the pants with no ass. You know what I mean? Like, I just think, I think, I think creativity, it's, it's, it changes so much and um, it turns into so many things. Just some of the shit is just got to be the commercial break. Some of the shit's got to be the main scene. Some of it's got to be like that. And that's the unfortunate part of it. If it wasn't for that shit, it wouldn't be the special shit. If it wasn't for the bullshit, then Kendrick wouldn't win a Pulitzer Prize. You know what I mean? Like, we have no reason to look at it as special, you know what I mean? So it's okay for it to be whack shit. You know, people, we spend too much time complaining about the whack shit. We don't have to listen to anything we don't want to listen to. So uh, before we get to these rapid fire fun questions that I have for you, uh, I saw, I, I remember when it bubbled up, but uh seems like everything's square between uh, you, Eminem, and T Grizzly, right? You all talked or whatever. How did you all wind up kind of working that out? Because I, I think it was, I think T Grizzly, at least the, some comments I saw that he said it was just one big misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, um, it was just a communication thing, which I find and that's what it usually is. When you got those kinds of situations, you have to quickly put things into perspective. You have to, like with me, I felt like I needed to identify with what, what's happening here. You know what I mean? Like I had to know who I am, who he is. You know, I had to be understanding to why he feels how he feels, even though he was wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like, but when I was his age, I was wrong about many things, you know? So like, I didn't judge him. We got on the phone and then once we started talking, we were able to understand why he jumped to conclusion. He didn't, he didn't himself see the interview. He, somebody called him and told him about it. Cause the root of it was that 
it sounded like he was upset that, that he thought you were trying to block him from an opportunity to rap with Eminem. Is that yeah. the gist of it? Right. On a, on a song. And so he, in response and thinking you were doing that, he basically dissed Eminem in one of his own songs. And then it was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. It, it, well, this is the order that it went. So like, um, when I, this whole thing is it, the origin of this is me doing a breakfast club interview. And uh, I brought this up. This, it, this wasn't like they, somebody asked me about it. I brought it up. You know what I mean? So I, I brought it up in the interview and the point that I was making when I brought it up was um, I was doing a lot of talking to like younger artists during my rollout. So like the point I was making was uh, be, be cognizant of your decisions that you're making and every decision matters. And, and like, you never know who's listening. You know, so um, I used T Grizzly as an example and like it was kind of my, my thing was give yourself, give yourself more credit than, than to think like people either don't know you exist or you need people to be able to do things or whatever. But I was just like I spoke about a, a candid conversation that me and Marshall had and where he asked me what I thought about T Grizzly. At that moment, he was the first of his kind from Detroit, like with the exception of Dage Loaf. He's the first of his kind to kind of come out with no cosign, no stamp, no prior buzz. I didn't even know who he was. I had never even heard of him. And then he came out with a classic record. It was just special, you know, so, so like, I think that's what got Marshall's attention so early because normally people don't hit his radar that early, you know? So um, he was like, what you think about him? I was like, I think shit, the song is incredible. He was like, yeah. he was like, I wonder if I should do, if I should do something with him. And I was like, hell yeah, you should do something with him. I was like, I probably will, will wait until he do maybe one more just to make sure that you don't kind of step on his moment. You know, like everybody's quick to like give you all the credit that is T Grizzly. Like I think the fact that he is self-contained like that and what he achieved was something we've never seen. Like that's a part of like his story. Like that's important, you know, so like, when Marshall asked me, I was given my opinion based off of really thinking in his best interest, not so much Marshall, because Marshall's already what Marshall is. You know what I mean? Like, and I I am the closest thing creatively to him, and I've been in so many different situations with him, and I've facilitated so many different situations where he's wrapped on things. I've been able to see the outcome. And I've also built different brands. I've been in three groups. So I've, I've built different brands, different brands, different ways. And I've made different mistakes within those brands, different ways and like dealt with the outcome. So like one of the things that I learned is like, and this is a common misconception, just because you have a verse from Marshall, it doesn't mean that you're going to like elevate to some, you know, some other level or his fans are going to like now be your fan because you have him on the song because you know you got a certain amount of followers he got a certain amount of followers and if you just add those together it equals more followers it's like if it was that simple then there would be nothing to talk about everybody would just be successful obviously it takes more than that you know what i mean so like t grizzly had already dis marshall like the song was already out so like when i did the breakfast club interview the song was already out where he dis marshall so my point was we had this conversation about T Grizzly. T Grizzly doesn't know we're talking about him. He doesn't know we're conspiring and trying to figure out the best way 
for Marshall to not 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 only help him, but to show unity in Detroit and like to embrace him. We were gonna reach out to him. And um, but it was my opinion. It doesn't mean I'm the determining factor because Marshall didn't even have a record yet, but he could have been like, yo, I got this record, I'm gonna just have him rap on it. I'd have been like, okay, okay. You know what I mean? So I was talking about a conversation we had. So after that, maybe six months later, he came out with an album and he just dissed Marshall out of nowhere. So that stopped the song from happening. Not nothing I said, you know what I mean? So like, that's what I was trying to get him to understand. It's like, we, you're playing the victim right now. You're playing the victim right now. And I understand why you would jump to the conclusion that I'm hating on you because you don't know me. You have no reason to trust anything that I say. And I like that. I want you, I want you to hold me accountable for my actions. That's what, that's what I like. That's what I like. Judge me by what you see me do. And if you check my resume, if you're talking about Big Sean, you're talking about anybody in Detroit, you've never heard anything about me stopping anything. Like, that's just not a part of my genetic makeup. At my drunkest, that wasn't a comfort zone for me. You know, certain things are just not for certain people. Like, I've never been into stealing. Like, I've never been like a thief. That's just not what I do. Some people are great at that shit. You know what I'm saying? I can't do that. That's not what I do. So it's like, it's not a part of who I am. So like stopping things for people and like blackballing people and like doing evil things behind closed doors to somehow stifle people's careers. Yes, that happens, especially in Detroit. So I understand why you would jump to that conclusion. But now that we're at a place where you realize you're wrong, some accountability is going to have to come into play. And the reason why I say that is because you need to understand how important that is to your success to, for you to be able to do that. If you're not able to do that, that could literally make or break whether you're successful or not. You know what I'm saying? Because you can always fix things. Like, it, we're not tripping about you dissing them on the record. You know what I mean? But if you diss them on the record and then you act like it's something we did, and then like now it's like you're not embracing me. It's like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I can be understanding and I can be forgiving, but you're not going to walk all over me just because, you know, you're carrying around your transgressions. We all got them. You know what I'm saying? So that's all that is. So he was just like, yo, man, it's like, it's good talking to you because I just feel like with you telling me this, it makes sense to me. And I was like, you're going to find that it's always makes sense when you communicate. I was like, Bun B told me real early, pertinent advice. He said, anytime I've ever aired anything out publicly, I always regretted it. There's no upside to it. Like all of your fans that were in my comments calling me a hater, that doesn't bother me, bro. You know, that doesn't make me a hater. That, like, you see, it's like you can't, like, you can't, like, turn something into something else. I'm not predicated on anything false. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, like, shape a narrative that's going to make me become anything. I'm going to be this, you know what I'm saying? So like that should never be the goal with anything. You know what I mean? Like if you come out and make an amazing record like that, then there shouldn't even have to be anything going on in the boardroom that determines anything that is you. All you got to do is just keep doing that. You know what I mean? Like if you feel like you got to do other things and you know, that's just going to get in the way. Like, and we're much stronger together than we are, against each other you know what i mean so we had a great conversation i was glad to, to to see that and obviously as being somebody from the city you know you want everybody um because it's not 
like it's a it, it's certainly been you know a lot of artists, but it's not like a huge collection of Detroit artists that wind up being what you guys have become. So it's helpful that you all are kind of on the same page. Before I get you out of here, very quick questions. It's a game I like to play with my guest voice. It's called This or That. We give you two choices, right? You pick one. That's it. <laughs> very simple. Make the D proud. So, uh, better Fago flavor, red or peach? Red. <laughs> that red, though, it's like burns your esophagus. <laughs> you can't always find peach. No, I know. I know. Peach is like a, a old, oldie but goodie. Yeah, you can't always See find peach it. Somewhere it's like, oh, I got peach. But red, <laughs> like, red used to be like one of my favorite pastimes, like at the, at the family reunions. Red. Yeah. Although we know Verner's cures everything, right? <laughs> this is true. Exactly. Verner's and whiskey. Verner's and whiskey. Uh, Isham or Trick Trick? Trick Trick. Now, Isham, I'm not embarrassed to necessarily say, but I'm not going to lie. One of my favorite songs in college was probably Pussy Ain't Got No Face. Not going to lie. I know people listen like, what? There was a song called that? Yes, it was. And it was awesome. The reason why I say Trick Trick is not necessarily because Trick Trick's music is so much better. He just does more for the cause. Isham is like, he shows up, he does great music, but we don't hear from him. Trick, he takes on a different role. And I'm just kind of like into that right now. I feel like we need that. I feel you. All right. Uh, better lyricist, Joelle Ortiz or Joe Button? She trying to get me kicked out of a group we ain't got no more. <laughs> um, they both have things that they do better than each other. You can't compare like Steph Curry to like Durant. You know what I mean? Like two great players, but they, they serve two different purposes and they do it well. You know, you don't compare certain people. All right. I got you. Uh, off the wall or Thriller? Thriller. Really? We just had that whole conversation about pop music. Did we not? Did we not? You 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 put Thriller in the class with pop music? Thriller is a pop album. Off the Walls is an R&B album, my personal opinion. Um, you don't think Thriller is an R&B album? No, I don't. What takes it out of the realm of being considered R&B to you? Is it sonically? Yeah, because there's a big difference between, say, Working Day and Night or um, I Can't Help It. Right. Which is, a to me, a very classic R&B track versus beat it like they just they just feel very different to me. Um, I could be. Look, I am not an expert at this. This is just my really untrained ears. I'm intrigued by that. Yeah. But I would I would consider personally, I would consider Thriller to be a pop album and not. And that's not based off record sales. It's just like the feel and texture of it, like off the wall feels like R&B to me. Thriller feels like pop. And I love the Thriller album, so that's no hate, but it's just like the the mute, the album I connect more to is, is off the wall, personally. But Thriller has Lady of My Life on it. It does, which is an R&B Great song. song of all time. <laughs> of all time? Of all time. Ever, ever? Ever, ever. You don't agree? You don't agree? I see why it's in the conversation. I, I just have to think about that. It's hard to call something the greatest song of all time because immediately my mind said something Stevie Wonder made. I was prepared to just argue just now, and then you just disarmed me just now. You just <laughs> yeah. Okay, last one, last one. And this one I know is going to be hard for you. Jay Dilla or DJ Premier? Damn, I'm going to have to go with Dilla. You know, and I think, number one, my evolution as a man and as an artist, I've been in many situations where I often ask myself, what would DJ Premier do in this moment? And I think he would want me to, to pay homage to the fallen legend who, who, who went too soon. You know what I mean? Like he meant a lot to the, he meant a lot to the culture. He didn't have enough time 
to compete with with Prem in terms of amount of catalog, but like what he was able to, the, the impact he was able to make in such a short short period of time, and with his reclusive personality, he wasn't in your face. Dilla was just Dilla, you know what I mean? Like come to my world, that's it. I love that, you know what I mean? That's so Detroit. So. I, I mean, you know, not to say that that's in like comparison to anything that is preem, but yeah, I think we got had to go with Dilla on that one. Yeah, and his uh uh the the donut spot that he has downtown is official. I've been there a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope it uh, during this pandemic it, that it hasn't become a casualty because I know there was some, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think it was an uncle he left it to, and he may have gotten sick or something, or something happened. But hopefully, when all this is over, that's definitely one of the institutions in the city that's still standing. Uh, yeah. Royce, thank you so much for spending way more time with me than I absolutely deserve. Thank you for writing the greatest lyric ever, which is just referencing my name. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for being the queen of all queens. I had fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun too. Always good to connect. I'm a privilege. Oh. Thank you. Always good to connect for, with somebody from the city. Um, all right, y'all. Royce is getting out of here. I'm still sticking around. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. As of the taping of this podcast, the United States recorded a record 34,700 new COVID-19 cases in a single day. The death toll is now 122,000. And fuck it, I am bothered. I am bothered because the reason there is a rise in cases is because as a country, we have simply decided collectively, fuck it. Fuck science, fuck health, fuck information, fuck wearing a mask. This is sad, disappointing, but also so very American. We have people here who are absolutely outraged about wearing a mask. That a mask designed to help you ward off a potentially deadly virus is now seen as political just speaks to why we're all doomed. It would be one thing if America were losing the fight against COVID-19 because it was just too strong, too infectious. But we are losing this fight because of entitlement, ignorance, and a stunning lack of national leadership. We're just making it up as we go along, folks. This idea that we're the best country in the world looks pretty silly right now, especially when you consider the European Union is strongly considering banning travelers from the state once they fully reopen their borders, all because of our woefully inept response to the virus. When the history books finally reflect how we handled this moment, it will reflect that we waved the white flag out of sheer arrogance. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.